You are listening to a Bible-based message from River Rock Church in Belle Plaine, Minnesota. Go to riverrockchurch.com for more information and resources. Now here is today's encouraging message from Pastor Chris Tyen. As I pray about what to talk about, I thought that the Lord was saying that we should talk about the afterlife because that's a big deal. And it's something that we need to figure out before we actually die. So I uh, wanted to talk today about what did Jesus reveal about heaven and hell. No one really wants to hear about hell. Uh, it is really hard to wrap your head around it. It's hard to comprehend. It's hard to figure out an eternity of torment, an eternity of people separated from God for those that don't believe in Jesus. And it's not my idea. It's not my um, philosophy. It's what Jesus said. So I wanted, with the time that we had, to focus on what Jesus revealed about heaven and hell and why that should matter to us, why it should make a difference in my life. And I hope that my voice lasts for most of it. <clears throat> so we'll see how far I get. You might get to leave early. Who knows? I suppose I could whisper through the microphone. Jonathan Edwards, many years ago, read his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and totally uh, convicted the people just by reading it in a monotone voice. So I could probably read it too, but it's not a popular topic. It's not something that people want to hear about. A lot of people believe in heaven. A lot of people want to go to heaven. A lot of people don't want to talk about hell. Very, very few people think they're going there. They think hell is the place reserved for like the worst of the worst, like Hitler, Saddam Hussein, people that try to force people into the sex trade or people that purposefully try to make addicts drug addicts and destroy people's lives and um, all those people, uh, they should go to hell. But everybody else, people say, you know, well, how could they be that bad? And I don't understand it. I can't get my head around it. But we need to look at what Jesus had to say because in the three years that he had to share stuff um, that was recorded, he thought it was pretty important because he brought it up over and over again. The uh, statement of faith for our church says man was originally created in the image and likeness of God. He fell through disobedience, incurring thereby both physical and spiritual death. All men are born with a sinful nature, are separated from the life of God, and can be saved only through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The portion of the unrepentant and unbelieving is existence forever in conscious torment, and that of believers in everlasting joy and bliss. So, the question is, are you in or are you out? Do you know for sure that you're going to heaven? Are you in Christ or aren't you? Have you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sin? Are you following Him or are you rejecting Him? John 3.16, our favorite, one of our favorite verses. Uh, and it reminds us to pray at 3.16 p.m., which I do, getting in the habit, getting in the habit of praying at 3.16 p.m. For this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. We love that verse. We believe in Jesus. And we will not perish, but we will have eternal life. And everybody wants that verse, but they don't want to read further down and say, oh, but wait, there's more. Anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who does not obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. So God's wrath remains upon them. So their sins aren't paid for. Their sins aren't taken care of. They're still responsible. They're still a slave to sin. They are still headed for an eternity separated from God in a place that Jesus repeatedly called hell. I looked at a lot of 
different things, Bible commentaries and everything. And there's this pastor that was the pastor of Calvary Memorial Church in Chicago uh, many years ago. And now he helps pastors and things. His name is Ray Pritchard. And so he preached a sermon back in like 2003 and then later regurgitated as an article. And it was called Playing with Fire, Can We Still Believe in Hell? I just wanted to share part of that because it's really well thought out and I think that it will help you. So me, as a pastor, I get to use any resource I want to help encourage you in your faith, to help you move closer to God, to help encourage you to obey what Scripture says. So I can use video, I can use other people's messages, as long as I tell you in advance. I don't get up here and just preach other people's sermons word for word. But this one might be close because it's that good. And then, uh, I assume if my voice isn't holding out, I might let you watch Max Lucado share about what do we do if our loved one has slipped into hell. Well, how could God send a loving, or how could a loving God send someone to hell and all of that? So let's just see how far my voice gets. It is hard to comprehend. It is hard to consider. It is hard to think about an eternity of torment, an eternity separated from God. Many people want to think that, well, you know, annihilationists, they just think that, you know, after a period of time, then those people just cease to exist and that's that. And I can't comprehend it. I can't understand it. But Jesus repeatedly said that it was an eternal thing. It's not my goal to convince you of hell. Um, it's my goal to share, you, share with you what Jesus said, to share with you what it says, and that you and I, we need to deal with it. So is hell for real? There's only two ways to answer a question like this. Either we look to human opinion or we consider what God has said. The most obvious biblical fact is that Jesus believed in hell. You don't have to take my word for it. Read the four Gospels and you will discover that he spoke more about hell than about heaven. Most of what we know about hell comes from the words of our Lord. Add to that the fact that the apostles all believed in hell. The Christian church has always believed in hell. This is one of those rare points on which Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox, and Evangelicals are in general agreement. For 2,000 years, Christians have united in saying that those who die having rejected Christ will spend eternity in hell. Because Jesus spoke on this and he is the divine authority. So just in your New Testament, if you were to just skim through Matthew 5.22, in the red letters, you would see Jesus say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Matthew 5.22. Matthew 5.29, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell, Jesus said. Matthew 7.13, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only if you ever find it. So the highway to hell is broad. The way to heaven, the narrow road, there's less people on it. Matthew 7.21, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On Judgment Day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. Jesus says, I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws, you evildoers. Matthew 10, 28, Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If your eye causes you to sin, God to doubt, throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Matthew 18, 19. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cross land and sea to make one convert, then you turn that person into twice the child of hell as you yourselves are. 
snakes, sons of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? Matthew 23, verse 15 and 33. Matthew 25, 41. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his demons. And you can find more verses where Jesus talks about hell. So Jesus talked about it, and we need to try to understand what it is, but is hell for real? Ray Pritchard shares an abbreviated story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, 19. Luke 16, 19 to 31 offers our best and clearest picture into the nature of hell. Because these words came from Jesus, we must treat them with the utmost respect. Because he is the Son of God, he speaks with divine authority. What he says can be trusted. I have no obligation to that as long as calling it a parable doesn't become an excuse for ignoring what it says. I'm not sure it really is a parable. Jesus doesn't call it a parable. If it is, it's the only parable in which an actual name of a person is used, Lazarus. It reads like a genuine report of life after death, which is how I think we should treat it. The story goes like this. A beggar named Lazarus sat at the gate of a rich man, hoping for scraps from his table. He was so poor that the dogs licked his sores. When he died, angels carried him to Abraham's bosom, a Jewish expression for paradise or heaven. The rich man died and went to hell, Greek Hades. Even though his body was buried, the rich man's soul still existed and somehow maintained sensory perception. In the flames of hell, he saw Abraham and Lazarus far away and made a request. Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Luke 16.24 That's a kind of prayer from hell to heaven, from the damned to the redeemed. Abraham replies that it can't be done. Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Luke 16.26 No one in heaven can cross over to hell. No one in hell can cross over to heaven. Eternal destinies are fixed at the moment of death and cannot be changed, nor can the situation in hell be alleviated. The rich man then thinks of his five brothers still living and asks Abraham to send Lazarus to warn them not to follow him to hell. Abraham refuses that request, saying that they should read Moses and the prophets. Deeply concerned for his brothers, the rich man declares that they will believe if someone comes from them, comes to them from the dead. Still, the answer is no. If they won't believe what the prophets have written, they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. End of story. Once in heaven, always in heaven. Once in hell, always in hell. So what do we learn from this passage about life after death and the situation of those who are in hell? Number one, the dead are still alive. Both Lazarus and the rich man survive their own funerals. Number two, the dead retain their personalities and their essential character. Lazarus is still Lazarus and the rich man is still the rich man. Even in hell, the rich man could see, hear, feel, recognize, remember, speak, reflect, plead, suffer, and think ahead. There was only one thing he couldn't do. He couldn't get out of hell. Number three, death marks the final separation between the saved and the lost. Once in heaven, always in heaven. Once in hell, always in hell. No one can pass from heaven to hell or from hell to heaven. Or Number four, hell is a place of personal suffering. Hell is a place of personal suffering. Three times Jesus mentions the torment, suffering, and agony of the rich man. Number five, the damned cry for help that does not come. None of the rich man's prayers were answered, nor could they be. Is hell for real? If the words of Jesus are taken at face value, the answer must be yes. Another great sermon, he says, would be what people know in hell, or what people in hell know. Consider what the rich man knew. One, he knew there was no way out for him. Number two, he knew his brothers could avoid hell if they repented. And number three, he knew that someone needed to warn them about the danger they were in. Here is a case where a man in hell has more evangelistic fervor than most Christians on earth. Is hell for real? If the words of Jesus are taken at face value, the answer must be yes. 
So when we think about that, we really need to think about what can we do? What can we do to share our faith? I mean, it is uncomfortable to share our faith. It is inconvenient. We're so terrified that someone's going to ask us a question we don't know the answer to, or someone's going to know us and look at our life and say, what are you talking to me about heaven and hell for? We know you're not perfect. But it's not about being perfect. It's about being in Jesus. Jesus is perfect. So to question number two. Question number two is hell eternal. In recent years, there's been a growing debate on this topic in evangelical circles. Some well-respected scholars have argued in favor of annihilationism. Funny how I can't say it if I look at it, but I can say it otherwise. Annihilationism. All right, some well-respected scholars have argued in favor of annihilationism. The view that some point after death, the unsaved are incinerated by God and simply cease to exist. It is argued that annihilation is far preferable to the traditional view that hell is a place of eternal torment. Some say that the doctrine of hell is immoral and makes God vindictive. Once again, our only source of information is the Word of God. And here are some biblical words and phrases associated with hell. Smoke, fire, burning, torment, bottomless pit, everlasting prison, wrath, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, unquenchable fire, eternal fire, the second death, damnation, furnace of fire, blackness and darkness, and burning sulfur. Those images and symbols do not sound like annihilation to me. Consider Matthew 25, 46. Then they, the unrighteous, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. In the Greek, the same word for eternal is used in both clauses. If eternal life is truly unending, it stands to reason that eternal punishment must be the same. In Mark 9.47, Jesus offers a very graphic description of hell. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. The concept of the worm comes from burning trash dumped called Gehenna in the Hinnom Valley outside of Jerusalem. While the fire burned round the clock, the worms crawled through the decaying refuse and seemed to never die. The worm speaks of the eternal torment of a guilt-ridden conscience conscience and of evil desires that can never be satisfied while the fire speaks of eternal torment. Revelation 14, 9-11 should also be considered in this regard. It says, The third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on their hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image, nor for anyone who receives the mark of his name. So Ray Pritchard says, those who follow the beast, the Antichrist, will be tormented for all eternity. These verses seem incompatible with the idea of annihilation. Finally, we should look to Revelation 20.15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This verse describes the final destination of the unsaved dead. At the great white, great white throne judgment, they are resurrected and given their final sentence of damnation. They are cast into the lake of fire. So those who have rejected Christ would not be happy in heaven. When all is said and done, there seems to be no reason to abandon the traditional view that hell is a place of eternal torment. I take no joy in saying that because it means that some people will suffer for all eternity even if we don't completely understand it and no one on earth can fully grasp the concept of eternal hell. We must be true to what the Bible says and teaches. Question number three, is hell necessary? With this question, we come to the bottom line. Of what use is the doctrine of hell? Some Christians shy away from it because they think it detracts from the messages from the message of the gospel. This is unfortunate because hell survives many purposes. 
You know, actually, you don't really hear many messages on hell. If you find a church pastor who's always preaching on hell, you might want to find a different church. I mean, we all want to hear more about heaven than hell. But if hell is real, we don't want to discount that and push that away or be embarrassed about that. But question number three, is hell necessary? Number one, it provides for final justice. We need hell in order to right the wrongs of this life. What about those who destroy people's lives through sexual things? What about those who destroy people's lives through addiction or greed or those people who purposefully try to destroy or imprison or enslave others? Um, here he lists, what about husbands who walk out on their wives for other women? What about the politicians who abuse their power and get rich off of the misery of others? So many crimes go unpunished. While the perpetrators are left free to hurt others, hell must exist if for no other reason than to balance the scales of justice. Number two, it is the only place sinners can go. Those who have rejected Christ would not be happy in heaven. How could a greedy slumlord be at home in an atmosphere of unending praise and worship? Unforgiven sinners would be miserable in heaven. It would be like hell in paradise. They would probably ruin heaven too if they were in sin. Well, God can't stand sin. But anyway, number three, it helps the saints on the earth. The doctrine of hell reminds believers of the great salvation they have received. When we remember that we too were on our way to hell, we must stop and marvel at God's free grace. And the awesome reality of hell ought to motivate us to win our friends and loved ones to Christ. Number four, it protects the saints in heaven. Imagine heaven with saints and unregenerate sinners intermingled. The sinners would be angry and the saints would be frustrated. Where is the reward for serving the Lord if the unredeemed are allowed to go to heaven? And what kind of heaven would it be if you had a bank robber living on one side and a serial killer on the other? Heaven would be like earth, but much worse because you expected so much more. Number five, it demonstrates the greatness of God in ways we don't fully see right now. The reality of hell will make manifest God's glory in the ages, ages to come. Hell proves that God is both holy and is just in that He truly does keep His word. I believe the saints will one day praise the Lord that He judges sinners and that all His ways are right and true. So then he says, literal or symbolic. Occasionally someone asks if the fire of hell is real or symbolic. The answer, of course, is yes. Yes, it's real in the sense there's something that corresponds to fire and brimstone in hell. And yes, it's symbolic in that it's a non-consuming fire that burns in total darkness. R.C. Sproul says that the images of fire and brimstone are symbolic in the sense that they point to something else. However, in this case, the reality must be greater than the symbol, not less. He suggests that whatever hell is, it is so terrible that the people there would pray for literal fire and brimstone instead. And I think that puts the matter in proper perspective. To do, to do away with hell is to repudiate Christ and his teaching. So what difference does it make whether or not we believe in hell? In our day, many evangelicals seem embarrassed by this doctrine. We've already confessed that it's difficult to preach on this topic. It's not likely to be well received even inside the church. But are we then free to ignore what the Bible says about hell? Consider these words by Dorothy Sayers in the book, A Matter for of Eternity. The doctrine of hell is not medieval. It is Christ's. It's not a device of medieval priestcraft for frightening people into giving money to the church. It is Christ's deliberate judgment on sin. The imagery of the undying worm and the unquenchable fire derives not from medieval superstition, but originally from the prophet Isaiah. It was Christ who emphatically used it. It confronts us in the oldest and least edited of the Gospels. It is explicit in many of the most familiar parables and implicit in many more. It bulks far larger in teaching than one realizes until one reads the evangelist, the Gospels, through instead of picking out the more, most comfortable text, one cannot get rid of it without tearing the New Testament to tatters. We cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. So hell is real. 
And hell is something that we need to deal with, but we don't have to go to hell when we believe upon Jesus, when we place our faith in Jesus. So what do we need to do? We need to repent of our sin. We need to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that He rose again, and that by believing in Him, we can be saved. By following Jesus, we can have eternal life. And if you want to go to hell, just do nothing. Just keep doing what you're doing. Why should you die in your sins? Why should you go to hell when Jesus has opened the door to heaven? It does not require a decision to go to hell, and even God can't take you to heaven if you have hell in your heart. All right, fact number one about heaven. I'm much more excited about heaven. Fact number one, heaven is for believers in Jesus. Heaven is the place that is where Christ followers go. John 20, 29, Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. He says this to Thomas. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That would be us. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Believers get to go to heaven. Believers get to spend eternity with Jesus. Christ followers follow Christ for all eternity. Fact number two, heaven is the place where we will be with Jesus. There is more than enough room, Jesus says, in my Father's home. If this were not so, I would have told you uh, that I'm going to prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am and you know the way to where I am going. So Jesus is preparing a place for us in heaven, which means heaven is a place where we will be with Jesus. In fact, number three, heaven is reserved for those who obey. Again, I already read this, but not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. So heaven is reserved for those who obey. So I'm I want to show you a video that's seven minutes long and then the worship team will come up. So um, I'm thankful my voice lasted. I hope that parts of this have been helpful. Next week we're going to continue this, uh, not just talking about what Jesus said about heaven and hell, but talk about what the Bible says happens to you the minute after you die. One moment after you die, what comes next? I believe that you breathe your last, life, your last breath here and your next breath will be in the presence of Jesus. But we're going to talk about that next week if you come back, but watch this video from Max Lucado. When someone dies who does not know Christ, that stirs a lot of emotions in our heart, especially if this person was a loved one or a close friend. You may find yourself dealing with regret, regret that you didn't say enough, regret that you didn't uh, speak more boldly, more clearly, more candidly. You wonder, could I have done better? I don't think regret in a stage like this, at a moment like this, is sent from God. I really don't. I think we need to remember that God is the one who's the Lord of salvation, that salvation belongs to Him, that you're not His only spokesperson, that He had other people speaking to that person. And also, you do not know that person's secret thoughts, private thoughts, or final thoughts. You do not know the kind of thoughts that person had that maybe he or she never disclosed to you. There is the possibility that they made a commitment to Christ and, and, and you just didn't know about it. The Bible says that God doesn't want anybody to perish, but all to be saved. God wants that person in heaven even more than you do, and you can be sure that he marshals all of his forces at the right time to reach that person. So, so don't, don't allow yourself to, to, to hear this voice of regret. But then there's a second question that surfaces. And that's the question of hell. Why would a loving God send people to hell? This is a question that has a lot of problems in it. The question itself 
has problems in it. You see, God doesn't send people to hell. He has never forced anybody to choose him. He always allows the person to make their choice, even when that choice means that they would choose hell instead. He doesn't send people to hell, nor does he send people to hell. The word people sounds neutral, uh, implying innocence. But the truth of the matter is we're all rebels. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have turned away from him, each of us to our own way. So it's not that people go to hell, sinners do, the rebellious do, the self-centered do. So how could a loving God send people to hell? He, he simply honors the choice of sinners. He is, after all, a just God. If there is no hell, then God is not just. If there's no punishment of sin, then God is endorsing sin. Heaven is apathetic toward those who have suffered. God is turning a blind eye toward those who have prayed for justice. If there is no hell, there is no just God. As much as we might resist the idea of hell, isn't the absence of hell even worse? You see, God saves those who want to be saved, and He dismisses those who don't. Another question surfaces in this kind of conversation, and that is a question, does it really matter what we believe when we die? Don't all religions lead to the same place? Well, Christianity is different from other religions. It's fundamentally different. Every non-Christian religion says, you can save you. But Jesus says, my death on the cross saves you. Other religions have many uh, principles to teach us, uh, many values that are important in society. But when it comes to salvation, they are fundamentally different. So how can all religions lead to God when they are so different? This is illogical. All flights don't land in Rome. You know this. Let's say you're traveling to Rome, and so you call up a travel agent, and you tell him that you need a flight to Rome, Italy. He says, great, I have a flight to Sydney, Australia. And you say, well, does that flight take me to Rome? And he says, no, but it has wonderful in-flight dining and movies. And you correct him. You say, I want a flight to take me to Rome, Italy. And so he suggests another airlines. And you ask, does that airline take me to Rome, Italy? He says, no, but it has awards for on-time arrivals. And you shake your heads and you say to him, I want a plane to take me to Rome. And he says to you, sir or ma'am, all flights go to Rome. You know better. Every flight does not go to Rome. And every path does not lead to God. Unique to Jesus Christ is this invitation that he saves us not based on what we do but what he has done for us every other religion says do but jesus points to the cross and says done he invites we believe period it's unique to him unlike any other promise unlike any other invitation that's ever been given. The invitation was never stated as clearly as it was 
in the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I'd like to invite you to receive this invitation. Maybe you never have, or maybe you've never understood it, but I wanna make sure that you have a clear understanding of this wonderful promise in John 3:16. Why does God want to save you? Because he loves you. He loves you. He's seen your life from beginning to end the things that bother you, the things that you don't like, he's seen it all, but he still loves you. How much does he love you? Enough to give his one and only son, a unique offering of the only sinless person that has ever lived. He gave himself for your sins. He took your place. He exchanged places with you. He received the punishment that a sinner deserves so you can receive the salvation that Jesus offers. And what do you need to do to be saved? Well, he says there in John 3, 16, whoever believes in him, you place your trust in him, not in your accomplishments, but in his accomplishments. And what will happen as a result of this salvation? You will have eternal life. You will have eternal life. That's not to say you'll have no difficulties in this life, but that is to say you'll have assurance about the life to come. And when you have assurance about the life to come, that sure makes this life a lot better. Eternal life that begins the moment that you are born in Him. He promises to forgive you for your sins. He promises to resurrect you from the tomb. He promises to overcome and wipe away all of your sins, all of your rebellion and defeat your grave. This is the unique to Jesus invitation. Only he offers it, and only you can accept it for yourself. Please make sure that you do. Thanks for listening. We invite you to visit River Rock Church 10 a.m. Sundays at 330 South Market Street in Belle Plaine, Minnesota. You can connect with us, find resources to help you grow in your faith, give online to support this ministry, and share your prayer requests with us at riverrockchurch.com. May God bless you. Share Jesus with others this week.